my loved ones and welcome to the Sabbath School Study Hour from here from the Granite Bay Hilltop SDA Church and my name is Carlos Munoz. I am the uh, director for Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism and also an associate speaker and we are excited that you're joining us for this fascinating study lesson that we have for this week. Before we get started we want to remind you about our free offer, our free gift that we have and this week's offer is titled, Is It Easier to Be Saved or Lost? If you're interested in receiving this offer, please call 1-866-788-3966 or 1-866-STUDY-MORE. And you can ask for the offer number 124. If you're in the United States, you can text the letters SH and then 039-240544 and we will send you a digital copy of this book. And if you're outside of the United States, you can go to study.aftv.org sh039. And so we hope that you'll take advantage of this free gift that we have. And it's a fascinating and very, very important topic. And so before we get started with our lesson, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege, for the honor of coming together to study your word. And as we study, Father, into the book of Ephesians, we ask that your spirit continue to guide us and be with us so that we can go deeper into your book and we can learn and be transformed by it. We thank you, Father, for this blessing and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this week's lesson is lesson number six and the title is The Mystery of the Gospel. The Mystery of the Gospel for this quarter on the book of Ephesians. Now, before we get started, I want to ask you a question. Does anybody know what a prisoner of war is, right? Maybe you're watching and maybe you have been a prisoner of war. I know uh, my father was in the Vietnam War and uh, he was not a prisoner of war, but he knew of some of uh, some colleagues that were uh, prisoners of war. And if you know what, prisoner of war is one of probably the worst situations you can be because uh, you under that conditions, you will be mistreated, you will be tortured. And in many cases, some prisoners of war actually die in that situation, right? And so soldiers are trained to have to go through what they might experience as prisoners of war. But there is something even worse than to be a prisoner of war. It's to be a prisoner of war after your country has defeated or won the battle. So for example, you know, if you're a prisoner of war and all of a sudden you find out that your country or your nation has won or defeated in the battle, you're probably excited because you're going to be liberated, right? Those are usually under the Geneva Convention. Those are one of the conditions that the prisoner of wars be released and returned to their countries. Well, interestingly, it's happened sometimes in history where some people were taken as prisoner of wars and after their nation won or after the war was over, they were still under that same condition. And so the question then that somebody might ask, the soldier might ask is, why am I still here, right? Why? Why is it that if my nation or my country won, why am I still a prisoner of war? And the reason I say this is because some of us uh, are behaving or acting like prisoners of wars on this, on this earth. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if Jesus Christ, our general, our warrior, our champion, defeated the enemy on the cross of Calvary and by resurrecting, 
then the question is, if that victory was already obtained, if he has won, why are we still here? Why do we still act and behave like prisoners of war sometimes if our general has won and been victorious over this? And so I think that the book of Ephesians, especially Ephesians chapter 3, is one of those chapters that beautifully highlights this aspect of uh, how and why is it that some of us are acting or some of us think that we're prisoners of war in this earth and what are we really doing here? And so we're going to start with our uh, text, our memory text, which is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to his power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love this Bible verse because one of the things that it does is it tells us, you know what, sometimes we're very limited in our faith. Sometimes we ask with very little faith and sometimes we expect with very little faith. But here it's telling us that there's something in the word of God. There's this mystery, this power where we can come boldly and ask greatly and abundantly for the blessings of God that God has for his church, that God has for his people. So let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to basically... This chapter, this study lesson for this week is basically reading through chapter number three. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to read through it. We're going to stop, make some comments, look at some other Bible verses as we study. And we're going to have some uh, spiritual fun with this chapter. So let's go. Please join me to Ephesians chapter three. And when you're there, let's read and start on verse number one. It says here, for this reason, I, Paul, and notice the phrase that he uses, the prisoner of Christ for who? The prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. Now, notice Paul says that he is the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. Now, first of all, he is literally a prison because he is in prison. And it's interesting that he says he's not, in, he's not a prisoner of Rome, right? He says he's a prisoner of Christ. And that is a very, very interesting phrase, a prisoner of Christ. Now, when you look for that word prisoner through the rest of the Bible, it's used, that specific word is used about 13 times. And those 13 times is always speaking about a prisoner, a literal prisoner. But there's one time where it's not used in that context of being a literal prisoner. And look at what it says here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. It says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are also in the body, since you yourself are in the body also. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, he's telling, let's be sympathetic with those that are in prison, right? Maybe you're watching this program. Maybe you're watching it from prison, right? And, you, uh, are, and you're getting this promise also that God's people that are on the outside are, are to be supporting, praying, ministering, helping, supporting our brothers and sisters that might be on the inside. But notice it says that as if you were chained with them, Right. So we are to strive when we're the Bible talks about when our brothers are happy, we are to rejoice with them when they are sad. We are to be sad with them and mourn with them. And in the same way here, it's saying that we are to also have that mind connected with those that are in prison. Why? Because we are to pray for them. We are to to feel and we feel the same pain and the same way that God feels the pain for us that are dealing with the difficult and different situations and difficulties on this earth. We are also to sympathize and empathize with our brothers and sisters that are in prison. But notice he says something interesting. He takes it from the literal. He takes it to the spiritual. And he says, since you yourselves are in the body also. So he's talking about 
this prison that we have in this body, right? He's saying that while there are people that are literally in prison, right? That they are, uh, they are, their freedoms are, are limited. Their freedoms are taken away under a literal imprisonment. It's interesting because it's saying also that we are also in this form of, of slavery. We're in this form of imprisonment in this body. Now, imprisoned to what and exactly how? Let's continue to read the, the text as we continue to look through this lesson. It says in verse number two, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, right? How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I briefly written already. Now, let's stop here for a second and look at what he's saying. He's saying, that this gospel, right, he's saying this dispensation of the grace of God, which is the gospel, it's the manifestation of the grace of God and the power of God. He's saying it was given to him by revelation, right? And so this connects very, very fascinating also the book, the, the word apocalypsis. There's a revealing, right? It means it's an opening, it's an unveiling. There's something that is to be given or to be known. Why? Because there is a mystery but God wants to reveal that mystery. God does not want this mystery to, to hide something from humanity. It's the total opposite. God is in the work of revealing. Sadly, why some things are a mystery to many humans is not because God does not want to reveal them, but because many people do not want it, do not search for it, or do not desire it, right? And so it's a mystery for them, but we have the word of God, the sheer prophetic word that gives us the revelation of this mystery. And that's what this chapter and the book of Ephesians is talking about that there's this revealing of this mystery. Now, let's go back to the text and let's read what this mystery is. It says uh, in verse number three, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So there is a mystery in Christ. There is a Mystery in Christ that Paul is saying that needs to be revealed, that needs to be manifested, right? That needs to be given and spoken out, not just to the believers, but also to the Gentiles, to the non-believers, to the pagans, to those that are, are not interested and not, and, not in, and not caring about the things of God. He says there is a mystery that we as God's people are to share with them, to reveal to them. And so let's continue to read to find out what that mystery is. Verse number five, it says, which in the other ages was not made known to the sons of men. The, the terminology sons of men is a term that is used to speak about those that do not know the gospel, those that do not know Christ, those that are not part of Christ. For example, in Genesis chapter six, it talks about the sons of men and the sons of God, right? The sons of men in that literal context of Genesis chapter six, when you study Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5, the sons of men or the sons of, or the daughters of men are the lineage of Cain. Those are the ones that rebel against God, that don't care about God, that want to do their own thing. And then you have this, this, the daughters of God, the sons of God. Those are those that are following God, right? Those are those that are, that are surrendered to God. Those are those that live for God. Those are called the children of God, the sons and daughter of men of God. So here it says that, in past ages, there, this was not known to those that were not followers of God, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. So notice this mystery 
is nothing new, right? This, this mystery of the gospel has always occurred from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God wanted to reveal the gospel. It says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, that God preached the gospel to Abraham, right? And so that same gospel, it says in Galatians chapter 3, is the gospel that we are presented. You see, the gospel is one gospel. It's the same gospel, the everlasting gospel. And that same gospel, which is the plan of salvation, as we've studied before in Romans chapter 1, for example, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone that believes. So the gospel is the plan of salvation, right? The plan of salvation of how God saves us from the power of sin, from the presence of sin and from the penalty of sin. So this gospel, even though some people might say, well, this is the New Testament gospel or this is this period's gospel. The gospel is the same always because God's plan has always been to save us from sin because sin is the main problem. Remember, the problem on this earth is not uh, health problems. It's not financial problems. It's not marital or family problems. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are definitely problems, but that's not the main problem. The main problem on this earth is sin. And all of those things that we're talking about are the results or the, the consequences or the symptoms of sin. So the main problem is sin, and we know that sin is the transgression of the law, or in other words, it's living contrary to God's word, right? And that's how sin and, this, and the curse of sin came on this earth. It's through the transgression of the law when Adam and Eve began that, 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 that break away from God, and it started in heaven, of course, we know, with Lucifer and his fallen angels. And so that's what's brought in the curse of sin is when humans, when we don't live in harmony with God's word, because what does it bring? It brings pain and suffering and, and death. And so the gospel is that God wants to restore us back into his presence. God wants to bring us back into harmony with his word, with his law, with his 10 commandments. So that what? So that once again, the harmony and the peace and the righteousness that God wants to have present among all of his created beings may be restored. And we know that that's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 21. It says, all things shall be made new and the righteousness of God shall be manifested. So here it's talking about how God has revealed, he has revealed this gospel mystery in Christ, right? To who? To the prophets and to the apostles. So the prophets of old, again, the same gospel. That same gospel, for example, in Genesis chapter three, as soon as Adam and Eve fell, remember, uh, it, God said in Genesis 2, the day that you eat of that tree, verse 17, you shall surely die. The reason why there was going to be death is because the day that they eat of the tree, the day that they chose to rebel against God, the day that they chose Adam and Eve to do their own thing, to say, thank you, God, for everything you've done for us. But from this point on, we don't need you to tell us what's right and wrong. We don't need you to tell us to know what's right and wrong based off of what you say. We want to do our own thing. And when humans choose to separate and to follow their own path, contrary to God's path, that leads to death. Why? Because we are choosing to separate from God. And to separate from God means to separate from the source of life because God is the life giver, right? And all life comes from God. So when a human being chooses, or any being in this sense, chooses to do their own thing and follow their own way, you're disconnected from God, right? And that's why God, remember, God is, is love and the essence of love is freedom. So when we choose to follow our own ways, God respects our decision, but we are cutting ourselves off from the source of life itself. And so in this context, Adam and Eve did not die on that day. Why did they not die? Because there was death, but it wasn't their death. It was the lamb's death, right? That's why it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, 
the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Right. That's the gospel right there. How Christ then came to take our place. How Christ took the condemnation and the curse of sin. He put it on himself. Right. On the tree, it says in Galatians chapter three, we were redeemed from the curse of the law, which is sin and death. And Christ took that curse for us. He took that condemnation for us. Why? So that humanity can have a second probation, a second opportunity to respond to the love of God, to respond to the grace of God that Adam and Eve obviously took for granted and did not appreciate, did not uphold. Some people would argue they didn't understand the implications of what was happening. But nevertheless, we are in this situation, but God has permitted us and given us this second probation where we are all given life once again. All humans are given life. Why? So that we can see the love of God and we can respond to it. That's what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It is the goodness of God that leads us to what? To repentance. And that's what the purpose of this life is. One of the reasons is for us to be able to contemplate the glory of God through creation, through Christ, through the church, through the word of God, and through the many providences of God in this way. And so this has been revealed from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they were preached the gospel in the Garden of Eden, both with the lamb being slaughtered and with the promise of the seed that was going to come forth in that sense. But the promise was also preached to Seth and to Enoch and to all the patriarchs and to Noah and to Abraham and to David and to Jacob and everyone it is preached today and it will be preached forever because it is the everlasting gospel. It was established from the foundation of the world. It has been preached and for the rest of eternity, the everlasting gospel will be proclaimed, which is the love of God to save humans through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so going back then to this mystery, you see the dilemmas that we're having today is not much different than always. It's always been the same dilemma. Is God striving to reach the human heart? It's God striving to, to tell humans how much I love you and how much I desire to be reconciled, to be at one with you again. And that's the, the, how the Bible is laying out. It's, it's the revelation of the love of God and how God gives all for us. Let's go back to the text. Let's read verse number six, right? It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So verse six is the explanation of what is this mystery of the gospel. And it talks about two mysteries here in this context, right? It's saying that the mystery first is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, same fellow heirs and same bodies of who? With Israel in that sense, right? That there's one body, that there's one family. There's no more separation. Go with me, please, if you have your Bibles with you there. Go with, go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians, right before Ephesians. Galatians chapter 3. And look at how clear. You see, some Christians, some sincere Christians believe that there are Two gospel plans are two plans of salvation. There's a plan of salvation for the Jews, right, for Israel. And then there's a plan of salvation for the church, for Christians. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are one body. We are one family, all in Christ. And look at how Paul explains this very clearly. If you're in Galatians chapter 3, let's go ahead and read verse number 26. Look at how clearly he explains this. He says, Galatians 3, 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a second. What does he say? 
that all of us are sons and daughters of God through who? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, whether you're Chinese, whether you're from Africa, whether you're from Australia, whether you're from Europe, whether you're from South America. It doesn't matter what country, what nationality, doesn't matter um, what ethnicity you come from. Anybody can be a son and daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And vice versa, somebody that would be born under the Jewish lineage, if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ, what is he saying? Then they're not sons and daughters of God, right? This is not me. This is Paul himself explaining and stating this. And look at how he continues to say, verse 27, For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he says, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. He's making, it, he's, he's making a distinction saying, there's no longer Israel and Gentiles or pagans, right? Notice what he says. He says, there is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for we, you are all one in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has one family and that family is united under Christ. That's why even Abraham, remember Jesus said in John chapter eight, he says, Abraham saw my coming and he delighted. He was joyful about it because everyone, even before Jesus Christ being born on this earth, they were all saved in Christ, looking towards Christ, looking towards the promised seed or the promised Messiah of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is the first time the mystery of the gospel is revealed, is preached in that sense. And so notice how it says here, verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I love how he phrases this because he says you're Abraham's seed. Why? Because the Jews say, oh, we're the descendants of Abraham, right? We're the descendants of Abraham. And they were prideful in that, in that sense. And he says, listen, the true seed of Abraham are not those that were born in the lineage, the literal lineage, but the true seed of Abraham are those that what? Those that are in Christ, those that have surrendered to Christ and they are inserted into God's family. Vice versa, those that reject Christ are what? are taken out of Christ, are taken out of God's body and taken out of God's people. Amen. And so it's fascinating because the same book of Romans, for example, explains that when God justified uh, Abraham, when God called Abraham, Abraham was uncircumcised. And he says that's showing that the plan of salvation, the gospel is one plan of salvation, one gospel for who? For the circumcised and the uncircumcised in this context, which would have been uh, the condition of Abraham before he was before he accepted the gift of God, before he accepted God's covenant, before he accepted to be the son of God. It says Abraham was already considered God's family and God's child in that sense. And he was not circumcised yet. So this is just bringing together the concept of this uh, of the gospel. And so when we go back to Ephesians, when it's talking about then the aspect of the Gentiles being fellow heirs of the same body, I think this is very important because it's a two way street. In the same way that there was animosity and there was prejudice and there was mistreatment from the side of the Jews towards the Gentiles and the pagans, it was reciprocal, right? And so there's their same animosity and their same hate was going back the same way. We see this playing out very clearly today in the Middle East where this never-ending conflict between Palestine and Israel is just the, is just the, uh, the fruits of this issue that started from the very, very beginning in the context of what happens when, when, God, when God's people come into the promised land and they take out the Philistines and, and all the rest of the nations. This battle has continued and it began with Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, right? In that context. Ishmael, 
uh, could have surrendered. Ishmael could have said, you know what, I'm going to follow and follow God's will. But Ishmael didn't want to listen. And that's why he was cast out because of the bullying and the issues that were happening. And, and Galatians chapter four talks about that same context. But that being said, God, what he's trying to say here is that, you know what, it's, it's, we got to put aside these cultural, these ethnic, these, uh, these uh, religious uh, uh, differences that we have in animosity and we have to come together as one in Christ. That's what really the context is. It's about putting selfishness. It's about putting pride aside, right? And living for God as one brothers and sisters. And so he's the, it's, it comes from both sides, the animosity. And he's saying we are to be one family, amen? Now, how is that going to happen? Well, there's another mystery in the gospel that is explained here in verse number six. Because the first part of the mystery was that the Gentiles should be heirs with Jews together in the same body. But how is that going to happen? How is that, how is that pride, that selfishness, that carnal way, how is that going to be put aside? Well, you have the other aspect of the mystery of the gospel, which is the second part of the verse 6. And it says, and partakers of his promise in Christ, notice this, through the gospel. Amen? So, I get excited when I hear this because it's saying that the mystery of the gospel is that we are to be partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, the good news. And so the question then is, what is the good news of the gospel that we are to be partakers of his promise in Christ? And so the question is, what promise? Well, it has to be a promise associated with the selfish, carnal prideful ways that impedes us from being able to be one body, right? And this does not just apply to Jews and to Gentiles, right? This does not just apply to Palestinians and Israel. This applies to each and every one of us because there are many, many distinctions and differences that separate us in society, whether it be cultural, whether it be the color of your skin, whether it be the city or the town that you live in, whether it be your, the language you speak whether it be your political affiliations, whether it be whatever the difference that may exist, because there are many, many differences. The purpose of God is to bring us all together on one under Christ. And so the question is, how is that going to be fulfilled? Well, it tells us here that there is a promise in Christ through which the good news will be completed and manifested in that sense. And so the question is, what is that promise that he's talking about? Well, the chapter is going to say it, but I want to go with you so we can see it together. Go with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 1 explains what is this promise. Acts chapter 1. And let's let the Bible, I love to explain and to let the Bible explain the concepts of God. That's why the beauty of using a concordance to study your Bible, right? Look for the word promise. Look for the word mystery. And look at all the Bible verses that use that same verse and you'll come up with it. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse number 4. It says, we're looking for what is the promise of, that God gives us through Christ, right? What is that promise? Acts chapter 1, verse 4, and says, And being assembled together with them... He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for what? For the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with who? With the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So notice here, it's came very clearly that the promise of God, the promise of the Father in Christ to humanity, to be able to what? To be able to separate ourselves from our carnal, 
lustful, selfish ways and that there can be unity in one in Christ, what is that promise? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in that context. And we're going to see how this chapter explains what exactly that means. Look at what it says in verse number 8. Same verse, it says, but you shall receive power, right? That's the word dunamis, the same word that's used in Genesis, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the power of God to salvation. That's the gospel. Notice what it says in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, a couple of questions rise up. Was this just for the disciples? Some people say, oh, this is only given to the disciples to go to preach out to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Was this just for the disciples, the literal disciples in the, in, in the immediate context? And the answer is, of course not, right? Why? Because it says very clearly to the end of the earth. They did not have the means to go around to the end of the earth, to every corner of the earth and preach the gospel and present the power of the grace of God, right? So this is clearly referenced to us. Now, something else sticks out to us in this, in that we need the Holy Spirit with what purpose? So that we can be witnesses. Now, here's something very interesting that we should ask ourselves. Were the disciples not witnesses to the power of God in Jesus Christ, to the manifestation of the gospel in the life of Jesus Christ. And that manifestation is through the teaching, the preaching, and the healing. That's the gospel in action. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, if I remember correctly. That's the gospel in action. The, were the disciples not witnesses to this power of the gospel, which was the promise of the Holy Spirit in Christ? And the answer is yes. So the question is, why is it saying that you shall be witnesses in the future? That doesn't make any sense, right? But again, when we go to the, to the original language and we use a concordance, the word for witnesses to solve this mystery, interestingly, is the word martus. Now, what is the word martus? Martus is the Greek word where we get the word martyr. And what is a martyr? A martyr is somebody that gives their life for what they believe in, right? Now, if you give your life for something you believe in, what does that mean? That means you have emptied yourself of self. There's no selfishness in you, right? You're not thinking of yourself. You're thinking of someone else in this context, right? And there is an empty of self, of selfishness in that context directly. So what is it saying? During the three and a half years, the disciples, while they were following Christ, they were seeking their own pleasures. They were seeking their own glory. They were seeking their own benefit, as it says in the book of Mark chapter 9, uh, I think it's around verse 35 when Jesus says, what were you talking about on the, on the road? And they said they were afraid and they didn't understand when Jesus told them about what was going to happen because they were focused on who was going to be the greatest, right? So they had not emptied self completely. That's why their witnessing doors those three and a half years was incomplete, was impartial. We see that, for example, with, this, with what happened with Peter, right? When the, Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? He, 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 foul, he was a foul mouth. He, he denied Christ. His witness was not complete. Why? Because he was still full of self, right, in that context. And so it's only when we empty self can we be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is there. The Spirit is wanting to take complete and total control. But the problem is we only surrender part of our lives. We only surrender some things. Like in some cases, many, some people, well, I'll give you my tithes and offerings, right? But I'm not going to give you my time, right? Or I'm not going to give you this. Or maybe I'll give you my time, right? whether it be the Sabbath or any other aspect, but my money, I work hard for that. 
No, it's a total and complete surrender. Why? Because God gave it all for us. And so it's only, it's only, uh, uh, it's only worthy that we give all to him back. You would not want a, a part-time wife or a part-time husband, right? No, you want a full-time husband in that sense. And it's the same thing. If Christ has gave it all to us, why are we thinking that we can, we are giving a full surrender when we're not giving everything to God too and not dedicating anything to him? So that's the concept of this witness, this martyr, right? It's a full and complete surrender because the way that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit is when we empty ourselves completely. And that just means that the Holy Spirit has complete and total power and control over us, that we have surrendered this power. Why? Because we want God to do in us what we can't do. We want God to manifest His glory, His power, His righteousness in us, and we're incapable of doing it. And the only way that that can happen is for there to be a complete and total surrender. And that's what we're trying to learn on this earth. Right? I think I've said this before. You've probably heard me say it. The most difficult thing on this earth is to learn to live by faith. That is the most challenging and difficult thing. We're growing in faith, right? Hopefully we're growing in faith. We're growing in surrender, but that is the most difficult and challenging thing. And so that's what Ephesians is talking about, that the mystery is that we are partakers of the promise. And that promise is who? The Holy Spirit. Now look at what it continues to say in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We're studying, we're reading through Ephesians chapter 3, and let's go now to verse number 7. It's talking about, let's read verse 6 again, and let's, let's get back on, on track. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. That's the first mystery, right? And the second one is partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the one that makes it possible for us to put aside our selfish ways and to be able to join and be one with others despite our differences. Now, verse number 7, Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working, notice this, of his power. Mwah, beautiful, right? He's saying, I am a minister. I am a, a, a priest. I am a partaker of this gift of the grace of God. I have, I have received this gift which is the grace of God. Grace is a gift, right? It's unmerited. You can't work for it. You can't, you can't try to obtain it. You can't do it. It's only through a gift of God. And the gift can be what? When, God, when somebody gives you a gift, the only thing you can do is reject it, right? You can reject it. You can say, I don't want this gift because the gift is yours. It has your name on it. And it's saying here that God has already given us his grace through Jesus Christ. It is our gift. And every human being is from the foundation of the world has been given the gift of salvation. But what happens? Many people don't accept that gift. Many people reject that gift, right? And they don't want it. And it's saying here that that gift given to me, notice how Paul is saying, how is Paul able to receive that gift, which is the grace of God in Jesus Christ? By the effective working of his, pro of his power. And we know who his power is. His power is who? is the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so it's the Spirit that leads us to repentance. It's the Spirit that gives us the gift, that gives us, as it says in the Gospel of John 14, it says the Spirit leads us to convinces us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so it's the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us to surrender, that leads us to contemplate, that leads us to listen to and accept the Gospel. And so we say praise God for that gift the gift of the Holy Spirit in that context. And now let's go to verse number eight. 
It says, to me, Paul continues to say, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's look at this verse now. He says that what? That I am the least of all saints. In the lesson, it says one of the more fascinating aspects of uh, the story of Paul in this sense of that, how we see Paul is constantly giving in and surrendering, right? For example, the lesson points it out, but let's just look through it. Galatians 1.1, Paul says, I am a divinely appointed apostle. Then in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. So at first he's like, man, I'm an apostle. Then he takes a step down. I'm the least of the apostles. Then in Ephesians 3.8, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. So now he's not only putting himself in the group of the apostles. Now he's putting himself in the group of God's people. The saints are God's people. Revelation 14, 12 says, here's the perseverance of the saints, those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. So when Paul refers to the saints, he's talking about those that are sons and daughter of God, those that have given their lives over to God. Then in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, I am the worst of all sinners. So first he was the least of all sinners. Then he says, I'm the worst of all sinners, right? And he's just continuing going down and down and down. Where does he get that mindset? You know, John the Baptist said the same thing. He says, he, Christ, must increase and I must decrease, right? And that's what this is talking about. That is what this is making reference to in this context is that when somebody is exposed to the grace of God, to the, un, as it says here, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the amazing and overwhelming love of God for us manifested through Jesus Christ, what happens is that you will recognize who you are when you are exposed to the glory of God. Look at this Bible verse in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror, what? The glory of the Lord. Now let's stop here for a second. It says with unveiled face, that means that the veil is being taken off. That veil is what impedes us from seeing the true gospel, right? That veil is what impedes us or makes it a mystery to us. Why? Because we're closed-minded, we're focused on self, we're focused on our own ways, our own plans, our own methods, our own mission, right? But when we let the Holy Spirit take that veil off to reveal to us what it says here, the, glor the glory of the Lord in a mirror or in a glass. Where do we contemplate the glory of the Lord? It's right here in the, in the Word of God, amen? Christ literally, when those that were there, they can see the glory of the Lord. But for us here and now in this present age, it's through the Word of God that we see the glory of the Lord. And what happens when we see the glory of the Lord? It says, we are being what? Transformed, metamorpho into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so God, when we're exposed to His glory, what happens? We are transformed. Why? Because when we see the glory of God manifested through the life, the death and the resurrection and the high priest ministry of Jesus Christ, and that God is doing everything divinely and humanly possible to save every single human being, when we're exposed to that grace, we are transformed by the love of God. Our heart is melted, right? We are, and, and that's what changes the human heart. And, and I can go through my testimony, testimony as I was exposed and understanding that when I was in the world, when I was living La Vida Loca, when I was drinking and doing drugs and living a rebellious, uh, uh, completely uh, stubborn, carnal life, 
And when I understood that God loved me just as much at that moment as he loves me now today where I dedicate and serve my life to him, I, I was blown away that God would love me. It says while we were enemies, while we were rebellious, God sent his son Jesus Christ. He didn't send his son Jesus Christ to be like, hey, start behaving, watch out. No, he sent it to show us how much he loves us that even before the foundation of the world, he was already revealing and manifesting the gospel plan of salvation to restore us back into his presence, right? Through Jesus Christ, it's the love of Jesus Christ that restores us in that sense. And sometimes we think, well, well, it's just, it, it, this is just some, when, when, when I accept Jesus Christ, then that's when God well, uh, starts to like me and behave. No, God has loved you from before the foundation of the world, even knowing how wicked and wretched and horrible each and every one of us were going to be. How low we were going to go, God still knew that. He knew the worst of you and of me, and he still loved us in, in everlasting love. And the evidence of that is by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross for us in that way. And so I say amen for that, right? And so this transformation that occurs when we, are, when we are exposed, when we are presented the gospel plan of salvation that Jesus Christ and in comparison to what this world offers. Let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 9. We just talked about Paul preaching these unsearchable riches, right? Because it's not humanly found. You can't, you can't find it in any, in, in, in any book and anywhere except for the Bible, the Bible, and of course, any other book that speaks about it, it's because it comes from or based off of the inspiration of the Word of God. Let's go to verse number 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through who? Who created all things through? Jesus Christ. And so notice here, very interesting, fascinating, it's telling us, the fellowship of the mystery, right? There is a fellowship. It's the coming together. One of the most beautiful and powerful testimonies of the church, of God's power, is the church, right? And us as Seventh-day Adventists, I don't know if you know this, but we are the most diverse church in the world, right? This, there's, this, this has been uh, proven over in almost all countries across ethnical lines. It's amazing the diversity that we have. And that is one of the great evidences of the power of God, right? That we can put aside all of these things, how the world wants to divide us by race, by class, by gender, by any way that the world wants to divide us and keep us separated and keep us in groups, right? Well, God says, no, I don't want you in, my, in, in these separate groups. I want you under one group, one roof, which is under my love, the banner of my grace, the power of my gospel to preach to the world. And that is a great witness and testimony in this fellowship of all together that we may be manifesting the love and the power of God. Amen. And so let's go now to verse number 10 and look at what it says in verse number 10. That to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. This is what we're talking about, right? The church is to present to the world something different, both individually, because we are the body of Christ too, individually, but also as a church. We're talking about the local church here. For example, Granite Bay Hilltop. This is the local church that is to minister to this community, right, in this sense. And you have your, have your mission field, your, your circle of influence, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, the people that you interact with. Then you have the church is the next level. And then you have the, the world church, which is being revealed in all the world 
on different parts through different means. And it says here that we are to manifest, made manifest the wisdom of God that may be made known by to the church. Now notice this, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now, if you studied, for example, in the, uh, uh, in the book of Ephesians, at the end of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, it talks about the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's make a, that's a reference to the enemy. The enemy, his fallen angels, and also anybody that follows in his plan, right? Another term would be the waters or sea of Babylon. Those that are following in the ways. It says here that we are to present to the world, and specifically to those that are, might be part of this Babylonian system without being aware of it, but out knowing it, we are to present to them a different gospel. Because Babylon is giving them the wine, the distorted gospel. And that same distorted gospel is not only for those that are against the gospel, uh, uh, the gospel of Christ, but also those that have rejected the gospel because of the mistreating or the delusion or the distortion or the corruption or the perversion of the real gospel, right? And they have rejected the love of God because they've been presented the false character of God, a distorted perception of who God is. And so it's our job as individuals and as churches to give this gospel mystery out to the world. They're not aware of it. Why? Because they're a void of the Holy Spirit. And so it's our job that have the Holy Spirit to what? To win them over. How? Faith that works through love. That is what the manifestation of the power of God was in Jesus Christ. It was a life of love, which is a life of service, contrary to a life of Laziness, spiritual laziness, are in a life of selfishness. And so this is what he's being presented. We are to present this not only to the world, but also to the enemy. And you're thinking, whoa, that's a, that's a little bit intense. What could that mean? Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. The accuser of our brethren who accused them, them would be us, before our God day and night has been cast down. Now, what was the accusation of the devil against us? What is the accusation of the devil against us? You know what it is? It says, look at these human beings, right? Look at how they, be, look at how they act. Look at how they behave. Look at how they mistreat themselves. Look at how they abuse themselves. Look at how they, they backstab each other. And the worst of all are these supposed Christians. Those are the worst of all. He's like, you're going to let them come into heaven, right? Those are the accusations that he throws against us. Right. But what does it say here? The same verse says something very interesting. But they overcame him. That's the devil. How did we overcome those accusations? How did we overcome and be, were victorious over the lies that the devil was telling? Not only about God that made us to be futile in our minds, to leave us, to, to take us to be enemies of God by living according to our own ways, our carnal desires, our carnal uh, uh, our, our carnal uh, uh, mindset, right? Our carnal uh, pathways. It says we overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb, amen? So how do we overcome the devil? It's not through our own strength. It's not through our own power. It's through what? It's the blood of the lamb. Now, of course, it's not talking literally taking the blood. It's a symbol. The blood of the lamb is a symbol of two things. Number one, the blood was, was ministered in two ways in the sanctuary. First, the blood was shed, which is a symbol of Christ giving his life for us. But then the second aspect of the blood is that the blood was sprinkled through the sanctuary, right? And that sprinkling of the blood is a representation of the life of Christ being imparted. So the first one, the, the blood that is being shed, Christ as a lamb gives his life for us. The second phase of the ministry of Jesus Christ is as a high priest. And what does the priest do? He sprinkles the blood. In other words, Christ imparts his life. That's what the blood represents. He imparts his life. Why? 
because we cannot live righteous, holy lives. We cannot do it. Why is it that then the Bible says we need the power of the Holy Spirit? Because what is that mystery? It's Christ dwelling in us, the hope of glory. That is the mystery, right? That God, through Christ, wants to dwell in us, in the Holy Spirit. And that what is the purpose of that? So the same life of righteousness that Christ lived, that same power, that same love, that same uh, giving of self, the same emptying of Christ to serve and honor and vindicate the Father and to save humanity, that that same life will be imparted to us. And if we surrender, that life will be revealed in us too. It's not our life. It's not us. It's Christ who dwells in us that is being manifested to the world. That is the glory of God, that the character of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is transforming and changing our carnal desires, right? And subjugating our inclinations and these uh, inherited and these cultivated tendencies and inclinations that we have towards selfishness, the Holy Spirit puts them in check while the Holy Spirit as the water and cleansing agent is cleansing us from the ways of the flesh. Why? So that we can reveal to the world, no, 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 no. We prefer to live for God's righteousness and God's holiness than to live for self. That is the empty of self. And that's why the verse says, and, they, did the, and they, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It was being revealed. Their witness now, what is the witness? The emptying, the martus of self, and they did not love their lives to death. What does that mean? They were ready to die. That's the emptying of self. That is the concept of martyr and testimony. Notice how it comes together perfectly. Amen? Now let's read, uh, let's read the next verse, what it says here in verse number 11. As we close out this chapter, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That purpose of what? Of vindicating the name of God. We don't vindicate God. God is vindicating himself through us, right? And as he did through Jesus Christ, and he said he accomplished that, that in Christ was revealed the glory of God. But notice what it says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That's Hebrews chapter four right there when it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a high priest that understands, that sympathizes and understands our weaknesses because he had those same weaknesses, yet he never sinned. And so that gives us help that we can overcome our selfish, sinful, carnal ways too. Why? If we have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in in Christ that it may be in us. That is what? That he who was on the throne, he became nothing. He became a slave. He became a servant. And that same mind of humility, that same mind of surrender may be revealed in us. Verse 13. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart of my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Right? He's saying, I may be in prison, but I am rejoicing in Jesus Christ and in rejoicing that there is a purpose and a mission. Why? Paul would say I'm in prison for him to do. And now what Paul does from verse 14 to 21 is he gives a beautiful prayer as we bring and close this out. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Amen? My brother, my sister, you and I are a son and daughter of God. If we have surrendered our lives, if we are surrendering our lives, if we are living by faith, if we are learning and growing every day through the Word of God, it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes through the Word and the... Faith comes through the hearing and hearing through the word of God. It's daily surrendering our time, what? To sacrificing self 
to spend time in prayer, spend time in the word. Why? So that we can know God, that we can see the glory of God and he can transform and change us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The word of God, when we eat it, right? It comes in us. Christ comes in us through his word, Christ dwelling in us. And the Holy Spirit uses that to change and transform exactly who we are. This is just beautiful. Verse 16, that he would grant you and me according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Notice how it's repeating itself. Christ dwelling in us, the hope of glory, the great mystery, right? So that what? So that we can have strength and that we no longer need to be slaves to sin. As it says, this is explained perfectly and beautifully in Romans chapter six. If you want to read that chapter, he says, you know, we, you were born, right? As, uh, as a slave to selfishness, but he says, you don't need to be a slave. You can give in, you can be a slave to Christ and you don't have to be because through the power of God, we are liberated from the ways of the flesh and we are given power so that we can live in harmony with his word in that sense. And that has to do with what? With love, loving others and giving away our selfish ways. It says here, verse 17, notice this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Notice this, love for who? Love for God and love for others independently, a Jew, a Greek, a Chinese, an Asian, uh, a Japanese, whoever, whatever nationality, whatever race, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what class, it doesn't matter what political size, that you can love everybody. That is the manifestation of the power of God working in us. Verse 18, and may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height. This is going in all directions, up, down, right, left, east, west, towards, north, south. It doesn't matter is that everywhere you go, God is doing everything humanly possible to save us, to restore us. And this is that great manifestation that is being talked about here, my loved ones, is that it, everywhere you go, the power of God, the love of God is being revealed and manifested to us that we may comprehend to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge because it's revealed in every way, in every aspect to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God, right? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Notice how it all connects. It all comes back around to the same purpose, the same thing. And it finishes verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, what do you think this is talking about? It's clearly talking about asking and thinking, not for a Porsche, not for a big house. No, it's asking and begging for spiritual blessings, right? For spiritual growth, for spiritual knowledge, for spiritual uh, victory over sin. That's what it's asking, that we would have exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think. It's not about the worldly things. It's about spiritual things that God wants to give us exceedingly great things according to the power that works in us. Who is what? Christ in us, hope of glory, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That is the everlasting gospel. The great news of God going out to the world and from before the foundation of the world, throughout all the history of humanity and for the rest of eternity, the grace of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God, the righteousness of God will be glorified forever. And we will be thanking God for all of these things and through which he came and gave it all for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so 
My loved ones, I hope that you are blessed as I was blessed studying this chapter and preparing this chapter so that we can come together and study and understand these things. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, is this love being manifested? Is the love that works through faith being manifested in me as it was in Jesus Christ? Am I fooling myself in this way, thinking that I am? Well, you should be growing in the fruits of the Spirit. That's the manifestation of the Spirit. Am I growing in the fruits of the Spirit? And that's how you know. Am I growing in temperance, in love, in patience, in, 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 in empathy in, for others? I pray that that is the case. And if not, then we need to spend more time in prayer and in study, sacrificing self. I want to remind you about our free gift. Is it easier to be saved or to be lost? A very, very important topic to study. If you want to receive it, 1-866-788-3966. Ask for offer number 124. You can also text us if you're in the United States, SH039 to the number 40544. Please do so so you can receive this important topic. And let's have a word of prayer as we close this fascinating study on the book of Ephesians. This was lesson number six, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this blessing and this privilege. And we ask, Father, that your spirit be with us, guide us, direct us, Father, so that everything that we read today that is studied, may we not only understand it, but digest it. As we are to eat the lamb, as Christ was going to come in as the bread of life and manifest in us, Father, let him manifest himself as he wants to and let us surrender so that God can, you can do in us and through us what you want to do and not have to struggle and battle with our own ways and our own desires. Thank you, Father, for these blessings and for these wonderful lessons and teachings through your word. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for being with us and we hope to see you in our next study lesson. God bless. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.